0: Church, good morning to you. Turn to Acts 7. we got a lot of ground to cover this morning as we continue teaching through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, 1 through 53. And uh, we'll take a look at how old Stephen uh, flips the script, if you would, on the religious leaders. Now when I thought about flipping the script, I went back to a time when I was in the seventh grade and I flipped the script, and here's how that happened. I come home with a terrible report card in the seventh grade. I know that's a shock to some of y'all, but it wasn't a shock to me, but it just got frustrating. I can be empathetic with my parents, and it was a bad report card. My mom looked at it first, and she said, your dad's going to kill you. And she just kept saying that over and over. And for a seventh grade mind, I thought, it could be a possibility, right? And he ain't going to be happy. And so he comes in and she shows it to him and we're both looking there. He sits down at the table, crosses his legs, And he goes through a a whole host of things, and he's grumbling and mumbling, and you can tell the rage is building. I got my rage, honestly, (laughs) back at home. And uh, and then he happened to ask this question. And of course, I wasn't a believer, but I think I was praying at the time. (laughs) And all of a sudden, he asked the question beside this little block that said, Conduct. What does P mean? And I said, would you believe perfect? (laughs) The wisdom I had even in the seventh grade was obvious, right? He immediately closed the report card and said, well, at least you know how to behave yourself. Work hard on your grades and walked away. Boom, flipped the script, right? (laughs) I did not die. We're going to see Stephen do that to the religious leaders. This man named Stephen, he will also give the longest sermon in all of Acts as he defends his faith in Christ against the same group of men that Jesus stood before, John and Peter stood before, and the apostles stood before. It is a trial. and we. One thing we know about Stephen, he will be next week the first Christian martyr. But he was wise. The scriptures tell us that. And he's wise in the sense that he uses the religious leader's favorite subjects, subject to give his speech. And that subject was themselves. They love reciting all of their own history where they were their own heroes. They believe they were saved, as you know, because of their ancestry, because they came from the loins of Abraham. Their whole lives and identity were built on this. And in this trial, because the religious leaders it's happening because the religious leaders have trumped up charges that we saw earlier in Acts 6. Acts six eleven through 14. And, and the bottom line of those charges are this, that uh, he has committed blasphemy. Uh, and so Certainly against Moses, against the law, against the temple, against God, and so he starts out, if you would, as his own defense attorney. But by the end of the text, he's turned into the prosecuting attorney, and he flips the script in that those who thought they were indicting, indicting Steve, Stephen, is uh, the, them themselves are getting convicted. Now just another reminder, Stephen was one of the seven men appointed to help serve the uh, the widows in Acts 6 and a man full of faith. And one of the things, many things that I found great and amazing about this text is how Stephen uses the precision and the right interpretation of Scripture to cut through their arguments like a knife cutting through butter. And so as you listen this morning, that too will get to be our application because there are lies that the religious leaders are believing and Stephen cuts through that. And I know from my own mind and heart and talking to you, there are lies that we believe about God that can be corrected this morning. Before we get into the text, I know for years I look at this text of Stephen defending himself and it feels radical, doesn't it? It feels outside of what's normal. It feels outside of what I or you are capable of doing. But I want us to know this morning, as a reminder, this is Christianity 101. First Peter 3.15 says, "...but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer to everyone that asks of you." That's a command to every believer. And we see Steve do that this morning, or Stephen. So the first thing he does in verse 1 is he asks a question. He says, are these things so? The high priest comes along and he says, these charges that you've been charged with back in Acts 6, are they true? So then it makes us ask, what things? And as I just mentioned, he's been charged with blasphemy against God, Moses, the law, and the temple. These things that are the most precious things to a Jew ever. So he starts his defense if you would by expounding on four different seasons of Israel's redemptive history. And the first one is Abraham. Let me read verses 2 through 8. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia Before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect. "...that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the the nation that they serve," said God. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs, or the brothers of Joseph." So just to be clear, we want to set up, we're going to have a trial. and the problem is this, these Jews, these Jewish religious leaders, they prized Jerusalem and the temple in a way that was unhealthy because God had promised to do this. He had promised to put his name there in the temple that was located in Jerusalem to meet his people there. And certainly the Psalms speak of this. but over the years, human tradition carried the day and their conclusion became misinformed as one writer said. Their view of Yahweh, their God had been completely tied to the temple. That that was their view. Meaning that is the only place He dwells. So if the temple was destroyed like Jesus said He was going to destroy it. Remember Jesus said He was the true temple? That He would He would tear it down, meaning his death, and then three days later he would what? Raise it up? That meant God had abandoned his people. And so they were hung up on this. So Steve, being full of the Spirit, it is no accident that the first thing he tells these religious leaders is that God, or Yahweh, is the God of glory, which really shows He believes in the same God as them. And he also used the phrase brothers and father. There's a sense of respect that catch their ears as he begins to defend himself. He then gives us the details of how God, if you notice in the text, made himself known to Abraham. Now just a little bit on God's glory. When the Jews thought of God's glory, they thought of this phrase Shekinah glory, how God manifests Himself to people. And they also thought about the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, or when it was in the wilderness, the tent, tabernacle, that it, it resided there in that tent, and so therefore also the glory of God resided there. So Stephen reminds them that it was the God of glory, this God that they both believe in, that appeared to Abraham, and he and his family, what were they doing when this God of glory appeared? They were worshiping pagan idols. They were worshiping false gods in a foreign land. And so Stephen's trying to make this point. Initially his points will be subtle, they will become stronger, and then he will drop the hammer. But his initial point is your thoughts about this sacred space that you have concerning the temple in Jerusalem are so wrong because God appeared in all his glory to Abraham in a foreign land while he was worshiping false gods 254 exact miles from Jerusalem and the temple. He then in the text we read mentions the call of Abe to leave and go to that promised land. The land that they're actually standing in now in Jerusalem or Israel and Obviously, these religious leaders, they knew this information. They knew the Bible, the Old Testament, the Torah, like the back of their hand, but they needed reminding that although Abe was promised the land, he never what? He never inherited it. He says he didn't even stick his foot in it, not one foot in it. And again, Stephen is pointing out so much of your idea of sacred space meaning being the promised land, Abraham never even occupied it on his own. It was a far-off inheritance. So what what Stephen wants them to get, what Stephen ultimately, ultimately wants us to get is this emphasis here, that God takes divine initiative with his people He is the God who speaks, who appears, who sins, who promises, who punishes, and who rescues. It was God who was leading each stage of His people's journey just like (laughs) He leads each stage of mine and your journey. And I think we forget that way too much as if we're just on our own somewhere. No. No. God was with them through it all. And it was all very far away from Jerusalem. <laughs> now verse 8 does tell us what God did do with Abraham. He gave him this covenant of circumcision. And it says he gave him a son we know as Isaac. And through, and that's Isaac, through Isaac is where Israel's lineage leads to Jesus. Jesus. But what the religious leaders have failed to grasp for some reason, hard-heartedness, stubbornness, whatever, is Abe's connection with God is not based on some sacred space. His connection to God is based on a promise. His connection to God is based on a covenant. His connection to God is based on faith. There's no sacred space. What's sacred is that Abraham believed, we're told in Hebrews and other places, the bare word of God. And ultimately what we know now is that the promise wasn't about a piece of land or real estate. Ultimately, the writer of Hebrews tells us it was about a heavenly country, an eternal city prepared for them. So it is Abraham though who is following a god who is on the move. A god who is sovereign and totally in charge of Israel's journey. And all of this came before the law, all of it came before the temple or even the land. So again, Stephen's beginning to to press them, but at this point they're really thinking, well, that's pretty solid. He's doing okay so far. Let's m- keep moving. The second season after Abraham is Joseph. Look at verse 9 through 16. And the patriarchs jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all the afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan, a great affliction, and our fathers could, could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was no grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. And they actually moved there. Now just notice with me, just think big picture with me. If Ur, or the modern day country of Iraq was the surprising place for God to appear to Abraham, Egypt was at least equally as surprising of a scene in God dealing with Joseph. Matter of fact, I noticed that our writer Luke in six out of his seven verses he mentions the word Egypt as this to drive that point home so his hearers would grasp the importance. And then in verse 9 also notice Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, remember that, which were the patriarchs, meaning every one of these religious leaders came from one of them. Like That's my homeboy, that's my homeboy, right? Because they were jealous of him. At this point it's starting to become a bit more obvious to the religious leaders of the point and connection Stephen is making because remember all the gospel accounts speak that jealousy was how the religious leaders felt toward Jesus. We've seen in Acts that's how they felt toward the apostles, envy, And they were given up because of that and in doing so the previous leaders of Israel in whom all these religious leaders are from, the patriarchs and the present ones that he's now standing in front of are listening to Steve and here's what they hear. The line under the line. You Both your ancestors and you today have sold out God's ordained deliverers to the foreign people. Joseph was sold to Egypt and Jesus to Rome. Let me ask a question this morning. From an Israelite mind, is Egypt a good place or a bad place? Yeah, good. See see how that works? Bad, good. Yeah, no Jew ever said in their lifetime, hey, hey fam, let's go down to Egypt and vacation by the Nile River. It just didn't happen. But Stephen here reminds them that even in Egypt, God was with Joseph and gave him favor just as God was with Jesus and gave him favor. Now, as we know, Egypt does in this wild way become the place of redemption for the Israelites according to God's redemptive journey and plan for his people. So when the brothers of Joseph went to Egypt, the first time for food, remember, the text tells us, and we know the story, I think, the first time they did not recognize him. But they did recognize him on the second visit. Stephen's point to these religious leaders, if they had ears to hear, was God sent your Messiah to you but you did not recognize him the first time. But you, Fosho, sure, <laughs> will recognize him the second time, just if Joseph's brothers recognized him. Add to that, to all the sacred space loving religious leaders, the entire family of their forefathers, 75 of them, the text tells us. Uh, went down to Egypt. Now they were they died there and eventually buried back in the promised land. But this blows their beliefs, the belief that right space equals closeness to God. We got some of that in evangelical Christianity. <laughs> got to come to the church to pray. Whatever it is, nothing wrong with that. But it does blow this right space closeness to God idea out of the water reminding them that it was God who set the stage for their people's redemption not in Canaan the promised land not at the temple mount not in Jerusalem but in Egypt and that God was 100% with them they could not see that when things don't line up the way they think they should that God's not doing what they think they should That simply God is rearranging the furniture for his greater glory. I do think that's a big deal for Christ followers. My circumstances are not going the way I thought. I am not living in any known sin. But my thoughts about what God is doing do not honor nor glorify him because we miss that key point. Stephen goes on to double down. He says, God is transcendent, meaning he is everywhere. He is imminent, meaning he is near and he's not restricted by temple because he dwells close to his people and he will not and cannot be restricted by your weird sacred space beliefs. Here's what Jesus, how Jesus put it in John 4, remember speaking to the woman at the well. She asked Jesus, where should we worship? The Samaritans, here's their problem too, worship in one place and the Jews worship in another and Jesus comes back to her and says, the hour has come that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. His point, your sacred space narrative is throwing you off so badly that you are missing who God is. You religious leaders are guilty of idolizing space. You are guilty of jealousy. And you've missed the grace of God and his righteous one. Abraham, Stephen is, is driving this home. They're hearing the line under the line. Abraham dreamed of this day and rejoiced. Sorry, I lost my place here. The patriarchs saw the promise from afar and they rejoiced. And yet you saw the righteous one with your own eyes. You heard him with your own ears and you've rejected him because of your ridiculous love affair with sacred space. So he goes to Abraham, Joseph, Moses. Now this Section 17-43, through obviously you can see it's a lot of verses. We don't have time to read it. So let me summarize it for you and again make the points that Stephen is making the line under the line. The third reason of Israel's history that Stephen packs is Moses here. The charges against Stephen in Acts 6 are really against the law, but Moses we know was the earthly giver of the law. So they go together. Here's what Steve Stephen does. He repaints in some ways the history of Israel, Israel's bondage under Egypt and how they got there and how they got out of there and everything in between in these verses. He tells us the people multiplied we know up to two million. It became a new pharaoh, emerges very mean and harsh. He's throwing Jewish babies, Israelite babies in the Nile River, killing them. We know that Moses was born. He was protected for three months. He was being put, he got put in a basket by his mother in the river. Remember, he was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, then taken to Pharaoh's house and raised and educated with the finest of everything. And then Moses, as he grows into a man, he looks out and he sees that his fellow fellow brothers, the Jews, are being mistreated. He kills an Egyptian thinking that his fellow brothers would be on his side. They are not. He, they call him out for murder and he knows he's been found out. And so what does he do? He flees. He flees to this foreign land named Midian. He's a nomad in the wilderness. It's called prep for ministry. In verses 30-43, through 43, an angel comes to him It says, as a flame in the burning bush, where he hears God's voice, and it is there through the angel that God told him two things. Take off your shoes. You are on holy what? Ground. I am, secondly, I am sending you to clean up the mess my people are in back in Egypt. So we know the rest of the story. God sends Moses into Egypt. He's doing miracles. He's splitting the Red Sea. He leads Egypt in the wilderness for 40 years. But after all of that, what did the Israelites do? What did they do after seeing all of that? While Moses was meeting with God to receive the Ten Commandments, the Israelites and their leaders gathered all the gold and they made a what? Golden calf. And then they said it just popped out if you read the text. I don't know what happened. Just, there it is. Stephen lets us and the religious leaders know, the present ones, that these people had turned their hearts back to Egypt, making a golden calf to worship. And in addition, Stephen reminds us of Deuteronomy 18. Is that me? I'm like, I'm, I'm, I, I, don't know, I thought y'all thought I was about to sing Deuteronomy 18, right? <laughs> That's how you memorize scripture, right? As a kid, you'd put it into words and music and sing it. Deuteronomy 18, he told them this, that Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me in the future. Like me, but not like me. In the future, listen to him. Stephen reminds these religious leaders that God, even in this dark season, was fulfilling his promises via Moses. His points are crystal clear to these men who they now know he ain't playing no more. He's coming after us. The script has begun to flip. They know that his points are even Moses was not raised in the sacred space. He was raised in an Egyptian home and that any Israelite would rather die than be raised in an Egyptian home. They know he is saying to them, just as the Israelites and ancestors have rejected their God-sent deliverer in Moses, they have rejected their God-sent deliverer in Jesus. These men who know the Torah like the back of their hand now know Stephen is not telling Israel's story for a reminder's sake, but to drive home the point, holy ground is not in the temple, but it is only where God is. God showed himself to Moses. For even the temple doesn't have a burning bush, folks. They know that God has seen and heard his people cry out for help. And that he is with them and that the religious leaders miss this glorious reality of God with us, of Emmanuel that came to save us. Stephen is now looking them in the eye, and they are getting what he's saying. This is what y'all do. Don't you get it, religious leaders? God works. God sins. God does miracles. He gives words of life. You and our ancestors saw the Egyptian soldiers floating in the sea as you walked on dry ground with 50-foot walls of water on each side of you. And what do you want to do? Return to Egypt. D.A. Carson summarizes it here. He says, their hearts were not looking in anticipation to a promise of God dwelling with them. It was looking for more wheat and onions down by the Nile River. Think about it. The first chance they had in the desert, Moses goes to the mountain, they make a golden calf with their own hands So Stephen is saying if God brought judgment on that generation, it is a for certainty that he's going to bring judgment on your generation. Jesus in John 5 put it this way. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me for he wrote of me. But they didn't believe Moses, so they didn't believe him. The religious leaders refuse to let go of what they love, the power, the traditions, their own sense of eliteness and the own lies they have told each other for generations. When Christ calls a man or a woman, he calls them to come and die. Die to themselves and follow him. They refuse to do that. Lastly, In this four-part history of Israel, we have David and Solomon. And in these verses, summarize real quick, this section deals with the tabernacle, their tent in the wilderness, and the temple in Jerusalem, which was the permanent structure. If you remember, David asked God, can I build the temple? God said, no, but your son Solomon can and certainly did. Steve's point here in these verses is both of these were good, temple and the tabernacle. They were both God's will, but neither of them were meant to, in a literal sense, be the home of God as as if that's the only place He dwells. Verse 48 tells us that. The Most High does not live in houses made by who? Men. Verse 49 and 50, Stephen quotes Isaiah 66. How can the maker of everything be confined within man-made structures? The idolatry of the Jews was to exalt the work of man's hands. Period. Remember the golden calf? Idolatry was woven into their hearts from birth. Who else's hearts is idolatry woven in? Ours. Like it's as natural as blinking. That's why these texts are so crucial. And obviously, the religious leaders missed it when Jesus said that he is the true temple. The bottom line here is the Jewish leaders were cut off by God by the first thing it takes to be with God. Humility. Simple humility. And then our text ends with the hammer. You are guilty, he says, verse 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? That's a brutal question, folks. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered you receive you received the law as delivered by angels and you did not keep it. As one writer said, Stephen now goes from preaching to meddling. <laughs> he does literally drop the spiritual hammer here. Each of these things that Stephen said about these religious leaders from the old, uh, that they were sort of leading from this Old Testament perspective that Stephen has spoken of, is highly offensive to the Jew. The worst thing maybe you could say to religious Jews is to call them an uncircumcised in heart or ears. Because in their mind, the only people in the world who were uncircumcised were Gentile dogs Stephen is saying you may have the outward sign of circumcision but you are lacking the inward reality because the circumcised heart is to be a new and obedient heart. Man, we do that sometimes, don't we? People go to church. We make assumptions about ourselves. We make assumptions about others simply because they go to church. They have an outward sign But is the inner reality there? Do they know Christ? Add to that verse 52, the brutal question, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? His answer was so, so clear. Religious leaders, this is your legacy. You murdered the Messiah even though you were privileged by the living God. Stephen has certainly flipped the script and at the same time he has exposed their lies to them. Now for us this morning, that's a phenomenal text. It leads to the death of Stephen next week. Monty's going to take that. But for us, what I was struck by in this text is how Stephen not only knew what the scriptures said, he knew what the scriptures meant. And that gave him incredible power both to defend his faith in Christ and to correct them. But he had already been corrected because he knew both the, the, he knew the scriptures and the meaning of them. I think it's the same kind of things we need. And so I have made a list here in your so what. Let me just wrap up with a couple nuggets around them. And I want you to pick one. This is one area that I must learn and apply because I am believing a lie about God. The first one, it says God initiates and I put with his people. We are chosen before the foundation of the world. If you don't get that, you're in trouble. If you think somehow God chooses me and stays with me based on my performance or how much I sin or don't sin or my goodness, you're going to get messed up mentally, no doubt. Secondly, God is with his people no matter your circumstance. He is not ashamed of us. He keeps inviting us home. He loves being with us. As one writer said, if there's one problem is that God is loose with his table invitations. He keeps calling us back to himself to meet with him and be with him. Three, God is holy and holy is where he is. There's no sacred, secular, secular, sacred split if Christ lives in us. Fourthly, God keeps his promises and is never late. Five, God is sovereign over both the story of redemptive history and the story of our lives. Think about it. He sovereignly purposes Stephen's death while at the same time sovereignly purposes Paul who is there and looks over the stoning of Stephen to live and become his ambassador. Let God be God. A lot of peace in that statement. God is at work. What seems like a dark day is also a day where the apostles, after this, only they remain in Jerusalem after Acts 8.1. But what happens? The church scatters now because of persecution and they no longer just reach in Jerusalem, but now Judea and Samaria and the, what? most parts of the world God is always at work God cares deeply about the posture of of your hearts humility is huge God is merciful to hardened sinners Saul is going to come to Christ quickly and we know some of these priests already did and then lastly God expects you and I to share the message But in order to share the message, you've got to believe the first eight things. Because only then can you share the message and let the chips fall where they may. So take a minute to look at those first eight things and think this is an area that I must grow in. think very specifically looking at that list which one of these do I do I not really walk in I know in my head but in my daily life I fail to apply that to whatever happening whether it be an internal struggle or an out external circumstance pick one Say, Lord, I'm going I'm to dive into this truth. I need to do work here. <laughs> Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning, and as followers of Christ, we are grateful that you are a God who cannot be boxed in. There is no sacred space. Where your spirit dwells, And now the new covenant, the temple of your people and our own lives and hearts, is where you are. Is where holy ground is. Help us to remember that, that there's no sacred or secular split. Where in one space we can sort of do what we want, where we want, how we want. In another space, we have to honor you. No, 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 no. It's 24-7, 365. Call us to that, Lord. Give us a vision of that. Help us believe what is true of you. The evil one wants nothing more than for us to believe lies about God, project them on ourselves and others, and live in defeat. Help us to live in your truth, that your word is alive. And when we believe the right things about you, And those right things get driven down to the depths of our soul. Not only can we share the message, we want to share the message. Because you've been so kind and glorious and magnificent and gracious and powerful. You are our only hope. Bring us to that truth. We ask that in Christ's name.